And now, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. Every time humans invent a new way to talk to each other, we reignite an age-old debate. There are people who predict that this communication technology will prevent war and allow us to all communicate more effectively. It'll be great. It'll solve all of the world's problems. That's the techno-utopianism. And then there's the technophobia, where people are concerned that this new technology will harm us, It will rot our brains. It will control us. Or maybe it won't harm us, but it'll harm our children. There's always a grain of truth in all of this, in that a new technology does have a kind of outsized impact until it becomes part of normal life. My name is Cynthia Myers. I'm the author of a book called A Word from Our Sponsor, Admin, Advertising, and the Golden Age of Radio. And I'm Professor Emerita, at the College of Mount St. Vincent in New York City. As we'll come to see, the history of advertising and radio is in many ways the story of radio itself and a foundational chapter in the history of American mass media. The earliest experiments with sending sound wirelessly through the electromagnetic spectrum took place in the 1890s. The first form of it is the wireless, which is a telegraph without wires where you could send Morse code over the air. Adding voice and adding actual audio doesn't really happen until the late teens. In World War I, it's used by the Navy for ship-to-shore communication. So after World War I, the U.S. government wanted to develop this fancy new technology. They decided they didn't want to take it over, just as they decided not to do that with telephony and telegraphy. So they had to try to figure out how to build it as some sort of business or industry. They created a corporation called Radio Corporation of America. The RCA family, including RCA Victor, RCA Radiotron, RCA Communications, Radio Marine, RCA Institute, and the National Broadcasting Company. Which basically stole these wireless patents. They were producing and manufacturing different kinds of radio sets and receivers and transmitters. And they're trying to figure out how to make more money from it. RCA created a network called National Broadcasting Company. This is NBC Radio. NBC was based in New York City, but they would transmit programs to stations located all over the country. Musicians would literally just play for free on the air to get people interested in buying radio sets. This might remind you today of how people provide free content in order to eventually get paid for it. But they had to figure out a way of financing the programming and the broadcasters, that is the networks and those local stations. They were technical people. They were running a transmitter. They didn't know how to make entertainment. And they also didn't want to spend the money. They wanted to rent airtime to charge somebody, you know, $50 for 15 minutes on their transmitter. But the only people who really wanted to reach lots of people at one time were advertisers. Up until this time, the advertising industry was primarily based in print, newspapers and magazines. People don't stop to think much about printing. It's like a drink of water. You buy a newspaper or a magazine and use it. 
Advertisers, those are the people who actually make stuff like soap or cigarettes. They would hire ad agencies to go to the newspaper and say, we want to buy a page. The newspaper would say, okay, well, that'll be $1,000. The ad agency then would be the broker. They'd go back to the advertiser and say, look, you know, don't you want to buy this page in this newspaper to advertise your soap? It's only $1,000. The advertiser would pay the agency $1,000, and then the agency would keep 150 of it, a 15% commission, and then forward 850 of it to the newspaper. And then the ad agency, as a courtesy, would make the ad for the advertiser. So they would write the words, copywriting, and they would make the illustrations or direction. Two major strategies evolved from print advertising, the hard sell and the soft sell. All aboard for the Kraft Caramels train. Hard sell advertising was all about the product and product information. Kraft Caramels in bags, pocket-sized bars, and at candy counters everywhere and tended to be very repetitive and hyperbolic. You had to give lots of reasons why to a consumer to buy the product. True caramel flavor you get only from pure sugar with all of the minerals, all of the protein of good fresh milk. Buttery smooth. You would say, look, here's your problem. You have dirty laundry. Here's the solution. It's Rinso Laundry Soap. Well, why do you want to buy Rinso instead of another laundry soap? Well, because Rinso lifts the dirt up. Rinso doesn't redden your hands. Rinso doesn't damage your clothing. Rinso produces lots of suds. Rinso is priced really well. Rinso new. It's an amazing fact. So print advertising in the 1920s was full of a lot of words, like paragraphs and paragraphs. The idea was that if you provided enough reasons why to buy, one of them would convince the consumer. Mighty Putty is not a glue, but a super-powered epoxy molded to any shape and applied directly to most any surface for an everlasting bond. Drills, bolts, and screws can ruin your project. With Mighty Putty, you just cut, activate, and apply. Here's something you can't do with glue. Mighty Putty seals leaks instantly. It has the strength to pull this fully loaded 80,000-pound tractor-trailer Now that's the power of Mighty Putty. A counter strategy was what we now call the soft sell. Instead of talking about the product, they appealed to people's emotions. The hard sell, soft sell distinction, I think, is really easy to see once you know what it is. Is the ad about the product or is the ad about how we feel? And most ads today are about how we feel. There's very little information about how a McDonald's hamburger tastes. But there's often a lot of imagery about people being with their friends and their family and enjoying a meal at McDonald's. But the hard sell was the dominant ad strategy up through the 1950s. With the print industry as their model, Advertising proponents were eager to start selling on radio, but there was deep-seated anxiety that this could poison the well. The industry and regulators are worried that it would kill this brand new industry if advertising was direct. They were afraid that people would turn off the radio, toss the radio set into the trash. America is a land of self-respect. 
people like Herbert Hoover, who was Secretary of State in the 1920s, suggested that radio only be an indirect advertising medium, sort of like a public relations effort. So an advertiser would buy a half an hour of time, and the only advertising was in the name of the show. So you have the ever-ready hour. Fresh batteries last long. Get fresh data ever-ready batteries for your flashlight. Or the Clico Club Eskimos. The idea was that a listener would hear the musical show and feel very positively towards this company for providing them with free entertainment. The music that these advertisers chose to put on the air had to fit in with their brand. Clico Club was a ginger ale company. They put together a band called the Clico Club Eskimos, which was supposed to make you think of coolness, right? Something cool and icy. And then they played music that was very bubbly. And my favorite part are the sled dogs that are barking a tune. I mean, they're not really sled dogs. This was all designed to create a brand association and what we call sponsor identification. That the audience is listening to this perky music and they're like, oh, this is Clico Club and they're the sponsor. They're putting this on for me and my enjoyment. Well, next time I go to the store, instead of buying Canada Dry ginger ale, I'll be sure to buy Clico Club. The program was the ad. The program was the brand image. There weren't commercials in the sense that we understand them today. But by the beginning of the Depression, it became clear that advertisers wanted to do more than that. And so the rules kind of changed. The success of our whole national program depends, of course, on the cooperation of the public. Advertisers were in a panic about the collapse of consumer demand, and they saw radio as a way of stimulating it. So what happens in the 1930s is that the broadcasters are not in charge of programs at all. They simply rent the time, and then the advertisers have to figure out how to fill that time. First, they would hire people from the vaudeville industry or the theater industry or the music industry. But advertisers were dissatisfied with that because they were concerned that those people cared more about the show than about their advertising. So they turned to their advertising agencies. Now their agencies were the people who used to buy them pages in print media. A lot of agencies were not sure that radio should be an ad medium. They were concerned about people being turned off by advertising and how it was invading the home and it was pervasive, it was just in the air. But some ad agencies jumped on it. A lot of print media were going out of business in the Depression. A lot of newspapers and magazines shut down. And ad agencies earned their money from charging commissions to those print magazines and newspapers. So with radio, they had a whole new revenue stream. The ad agencies essentially said, okay, we're gonna turn this ad agency into an entertainment production company. They would hire writers to write the scripts. Line, sorry, my bad. They would hire the actors to read the scripts and play the characters. What's the first line? Product integration. <clears throat> okay. They would hire music directors, producers, directors. Act like I'm not here. And many of those people were employed directly at the ad agency. Some agencies got into this because they were young upstart agencies and anxious to break into this new technology. Well, dear, how was your day? Pretty hot day, wasn't it? Mm, hot is right. An agency like Benton and Bowles, 
Most of their business was producing radio shows like Maxwell House Showboat for companies like General Foods. No matter what your favorite entertainment is, you'll always find it on the Maxwell House Showboat. Here you are. Yeah. Ice Maxwell House coffee, huh? Mm-hmm. A cooling drink of Ice Maxwell House coffee with its friendly stimulation that buoys you up and never lets you down. Other agencies like J. Walter Thompson and BBDO, which is short for... Batten, Barton, Durson, and Osborne. How do you spell that, sir? B-A-T-T-E-N, B-A-R-T-O-N, D-U-R-S-T-I-N-E-O-S-B-O-R-N. What's his first name, Thea? They were well-established agencies. They were very successful in the 1920s. And in the 1930s, they started their own radio departments and were soon producing dozens of radio shows for their clients. And the ad agencies promised their clients that the shows that they would produce would reflect the needs of that brand image. So all of a sudden, companies that made toothpaste were involved in entertainment. Colgate Cavalcade! Breath is sweet, teeth are bright, when you brush them on and not with Colgate Dental Cream. Radio wasn't necessarily the first time that advertisers were involved in entertainment. In the 19th century, there were these things called medicine shows. They'd get to a town, out would come a banjo player or a tap dancer or a comedian, and they'd gather the crowd around, and they'd put on a show for free. The medicine show is coming to town. The medicine show is rolling around. So shine up your shoes and count out your dough, and come on down to the medicine show. Then they'd pull out the product, and the product was usually a patent medicine, usually mostly alcohol, but they were sold and promoted as curatives, claiming to cure the flu, cure constipation, cure lethargy, you know, everything you can imagine under the sun. These were all fraudulent, of course, but patent medicines were the top advertisers in print media, and they were the top advertisers in terms of entertainment. How about a pain in the neck? Brother, that's you. Eventually, in the 19-teens, we got a Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration to crack down on this kind of fraud. But when radio comes along, there are people who accuse it of just basically being a high-tech medicine show. And in some sense, it was. You'll find the fastest and most complete relief in Anison you've ever experienced. The reason is simple. Anison contains not one pain the agent alone, but four. If nature fails, your food may remain undigested, leaving you headachy and irritable. To feel cheerful and happy again, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. My doctor recommended ivory. He says all any soap can do is cleanse, and that to protect the fine texture and pores, a soap should cleanse gently. And that to do that, a soap must be pure. Since Alcatel-Sur is a solution when you take it, the pain relieving analgesic, sodium acetylsalicylate, is ready to go right to work. And say, that fizz that creates thousands of sparkling bubbles gives speed to Alcatel-Sur's relief-giving quality. I'm just trying to find out how I can improve the program. I can tell off read some guys. For you. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, everybody. This may be trouble. Come in. You want an opinion? Uh, oh, you uh, you heard the program? Yes. 
And? It's too slow. You mean? Speed it up. I should. That's it. Bang, bang, bang. Goodbye. <laughs> he must be in a fast business. I make minute rub. So long. <laughs> minute rub. Okay, the sponsor wants speed. That's what he's going to get. Now, on your toes, everybody. We'll start the program over. Take it away, Pete. I, Panna, Sal, present. And here he is. Thank you, and... And here she is. Hello. Well, you can't get it any faster than that. <laughs> With radio, we have very few recorded programs from the 30s and 40s because audio tape, a format which you can edit didn't exist before the 1940s. In fact, the Nazis helped invent it. And the networks disallowed recordings of any kind during their network broadcasts. Everything had to be live, every single thing. The sound effects, the music, the acting. And that was because the networks wanted to make sure the affiliates, all those local radio stations, didn't just go out and buy some recorded programs and not use the networks at all. So when advertisers first started getting into radio, some of them were concerned that it was too ephemeral, that the words that came over the radio set would come and go so quickly that the audience wouldn't catch it. So they did things like they repeated their brand name over and over. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the new Fitch bandwagon, brought to you by the F.W. Fitch Company, makers of Fitch's Ideal Hair Tonic and Fitch's Dandruff Remover Shampoo. They spelled out their brand name. C-R-E-S-T-A? B-L-A-N-C-A. Cresta Blanca. Cresta Blanca. So with print, you had the advertisement on a piece of paper. You could look at it again. You could reread it. You could give it to somebody else. And they're really worried that this kind of ephemerality would make radio advertising less effective. But proponents would argue that that ephemerality wasn't a problem because radio used the voice. The idea rides on the speaker's voice and his words, on how these words are articulated and pronounced and used in language. And the voice was a much more effective vehicle for the advertising message than that dry, impersonal, voiceless print on the page. Radio announcers usually were like the MC of the show. Bones Liniment, your faithful friend when muscles ache and pain, presents Gangbusters. They would open the show, they'd introduce the show, they'd introduce the characters, sometimes they would give the backstory. Now we present once again Mary Noble, backstage wife, the story of a little Iowa girl who married one of America's most handsome actors, Larry Noble, matinee idol of a million other women. The story of what it means to be the wife of a famous star. And they would also often make the announcement, the word from our sponsor. Good advice, officer. It always pays to strike the happy medium, even in the laxative you take. That's why more and more people are using X-Lax. And those announcers then became really important because they were embodying the brand. No matter what your favorite entertainment is, you'll always find it on the Maxwell House Showboat. Your ticket of admission, as always, just your loyalty to Maxwell House Coffee. The other reason they thought it would be powerful was because people were receiving these messages in the comforts of their home. And so they're going to be more receptive, more vulnerable, we might say today, to this disembodied voice coming directly into the private, emotional center of American lives. Let's see how the broadcast gets from the studio to your home. 
These ideas that radio was a particularly powerful medium also meant that regulators are very worried about it. Of course you don't hear the real sounds over your home radio. What you hear is a translation of the sounds. The Nazis in the 1930s were using radio as a propaganda machine, and a lot of people were convinced that radio had converted a large part of the German population to the Nazi cause. And so there was a lot of concern that radio was too powerful a medium and we had to be really careful that it wasn't abused. Radio waves from many programs are being picked up by your radio all the time. More often, the networks were more concerned that advertisers would offend audiences, and then the listeners would turn off the network or turn off the radio altogether. NBC had a department called the Continuity Acceptance Department, and it was essentially a censoring process they would read the scripts in advance of the broadcast and try to censor anything that they thought would offend an audience. They called it red ears. Your ears burning, baby? So there's this very strong sense that in order to serve the public interest with this commercially sponsored programming, everything that went out had to appeal to all ages. It had to be inoffensive and uncontroversial. For a youngster like Henry Aldrich adds zest to everyone's everyday experiences. The scene opens in the Aldrich living room. And would not cross a line into anything that resembled propaganda. Now, we have this thing in the Constitution called the First Amendment. The federal government is not supposed to impose prior restraint on the press, that is the news media. They can't make a rule saying you can't cover this topic. But what happened with radio is that because it was an uncontrolled medium, it just goes out into the ether, the air, and you can't sort of control who gets it. Regulators decided that radio did not have full First Amendment protection. Radio stations had to serve the public interest. And that meant that they couldn't just broadcast anything they wanted. So a radio station could not broadcast pornography or even indecency. That is bad words. They could get in trouble with the Federal Communications Commission and lose their license. And their license is essentially access to a certain part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Today, the only entities that are subject to this limited first protection are broadcasters, people who transmit over the electromagnetic spectrum which includes terrestrial radio. And then linear broadcast television networks. NBC. ABC. CBS. And that's about it. Everybody else, all those cable networks, they are not subject to that limitation. They have full First Amendment rights. And today, of course, the Internet is not at all subject to limited First Amendment protection. Two dominant networks, both of which survive today, emerged in 1920s radio, with fundamental differences between them. NBC was a subsidiary of the Radio Corporation of America. Which kind of music do you like? And it was essentially a loss leader designed to just keep the industry moving ahead. You name it, RCA Victor's got it. The music you want when you want it by the world's greatest artists. 
sending out programs in order to get people to buy more radio sets. The filteramic antenna is featured in this X4 model, along with dual speakers that fill the room with the best AM sound ever heard. They didn't really see themselves as an entertainment or advertising company. They saw themselves as a technological company. That wraps up RCA Victor's new line of radios. Good listening and good selling. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS, on the other hand, was designed to please advertisers because it was taken over by an advertiser in the late 20s, William Paley. Some of my closest friends thought I was buying into a gimmick. I just couldn't understand anybody having any doubt about the future of this medium. William Paley's family owned a tobacco company, and they sold a lot of cigars, called the La Palina Cigars, on a radio show in the 1920s in Philadelphia. Well, well, George, so this is the place you buy those secret weapons you smoke. <laughs> and they realized that radio could be a very effective selling tool. Eddie, please, these happen to be very fine cigars. Oh, sure. You walk through Los Angeles smoking those things, and a poor, innocent rubber factory gets all the blame. <laughs> Paley basically bought these radio stations and this network, which had been a subsidiary of the Columbia Recording Company. And he builds it up into, I think, one of the most effective advertising platforms in media history because he decides to really cater to advertisers and help them figure out how best to reach their audiences. But the people actually making decisions about programs were not the networks. Back in the 30s and the 40s, the networks were only deciding who to sell time to. Let's have my own brand, Joe. There's a quarter. Thank you, Mr. Cantor. Here's your 10 cigars. <laughs> the people making the decisions about the programs were the advertisers and their advertising agencies. One of the top radio producers was called Blackett Sample Hummert. Frank Hummert realized very early on that radio would be an excellent medium for reaching housewives. Housewives would be at home, sweeping the floor, doing the dishes, and they could have the radio on and listen to a show. Ladies thrill at the new loveliness of your complexion, the radiant tingling feeling that is yours after a facial with Hopper White Clay Pack. Hummer decided that the best way to keep audiences tuned in to the radio was to provide serialized stories. Well, for a week, we've followed the continual plotting of the cousins against Mom. Now Cousin Sylvester is trying to make Faye fall in love with him, and at the same time, he and his daddy, Cousin Ed, are trying to cheat Willie and Evie out of their life savings. Newspapers and magazines have provided serialized stories for decades. They were very popular in 19th century literature. Those serials then were like 15 minutes a day. They always open with an organ playing these dramatic chords. And you've heard these organ sounds parodied ever since. The Hummerts would create multiple programs at the same time by creating an industrial script production process. Now, Mary Noble, backstage wife. So the Hummerts would come up with a plot outline. Yesterday, Larry took Mary to an old rendezvous in the hope of breaking down the barriers that have caused them to live apart for the past few months. Then they would have a script manager who'd break it down into acts and scenes. Although reconciliation seemed near, troubles involving Larry's half-brother Bob broke up what promised to be a perfect evening. 
then they'd have somebody else actually write the dialogue. Oh, Larry, I thought I was doing the right thing. Oh, no, I've made matters worse. And they could just churn out dozens of scripts simultaneously. The following morning in the dinette of Mary's Greenwich Village studio, we find... But listen. The same actors would stand in front of the mic and perform four different characters in four different programs, one right after the other. Say, this is the first real cup of coffee I've had since we fooled ourselves into thinking we needed a vacation from each other. Oh, I know what that means. You want another cup. <laughs> Here you are. Oh, thanks, Bill. Ma Perkins was one of their programs. It was sponsored by Oxidol. Oxidol's own Ma Perkins. And Ma Perkins would be somebody who would help solve people's problems in her community. And Ma never dreams that all her troubles come from these kinfolks of hers. But let's hear for ourselves. Then the announcer would come on and would spend 90 seconds explaining how Oxidol, the laundry soap, could solve all of your laundry problems. Say, that's a mighty white wash you're hanging out. You're using one of those new suds I've been hearing about? Something even better. I'm using deep cleaning Oxidol. Yes, ladies, deep cleaning Oxidol has got folks talking all over the country. Some of the other programs they produced were The Romance of Helen Trent. Once again, we bring you The Romance of Helen Trent, who sets out to prove for herself that romance can live in life at 35 and after. Stella Dallas. And now, Stella Dallas, the true-to-life sequel as written by us to the world-famous drama of mother love and sacrifice. In my Just Plain Bill. Just Plain Bill Davidson, barber of Hartville. A tender, real-life story of people who might be your own next-door neighbor. Our Gal Sunday. Once again, we present... Our Gal Sunday, the story of an orphan girl named Sunday who was left on the steps of the cabin of two old miners who raised her from childhood in the little mining town of Silver Creek, Colorado. These programs were heavily mocked and criticized for being slow, repetitive, portentous, boring, and they were also mocked because they were designed to appeal to housewives. Today, of course, we call these kinds of daytime serial dramas soap operas because they were primarily sponsored by soap companies in the 1930s. You know, I guess a lot of you ladies are having trouble with those halfway soaps for dishes. Well, you can be sure there's nothing halfway about new does. Although cereal companies like General Mills also sponsored quite a few of these as well. I don't know why they weren't called cereal cereals, but we ended up with the phrase soap operas instead. For youthful regularity, you try Kellogg's All Brand. It's A-double-L-hyphen-B-R-A-N. Kellogg's All Brand. Basically, the program was a hard sell ad vehicle. The soft sell, however, was also common on radio. The agency Young and Rubicam, I would say, was the top soft sell company. And they believed that hitting consumers over the head with repetitive product information was alienating, and it didn't work. The way you sold things was you tried to entertain the audience, you tried to get their attention, you tried to be a little funny and humorous, and then once you softened them up, then you would tell them about the product. Two of Young and Rubicam's top programs were The Jack Benny Show and Fred Allen's Town Hall Tonight. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you that delicious comedian with the locked-in bankroll, Jack Benny! 
Jack Benny was sponsored by the General Foods brand Jell-O. The Jell-O program, presented by Jell-O and Jell-O Pudding, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Jack Benny was a comedian out of vaudeville. Thank you, thank you. Jell-O again. This is Jack Benny Jell-O-ing again for the last time. Next season, it'll be Grape Nuts Place. They would interweave the Jell-O brand into jokes and scenes. Why don't you all go down to your little old neighborhood grocery store and say, Sure, and be gotta, it's a package of Jell-O I'm a-wanting. And then the announcer would give announcements about Jell-O. It was more than 40 years ago, friends, that the first package of Jell-O was handed across the counter, carried home, and served to a delighted family. An hour of smiles with Fred Allen, folks. 3,600 seconds of fun and music. Fred Allen was another comedian who came out of vaudeville. That lovable buffoon, that man about clown. What uh, is your name again, bud? Well, you, uh, you know me. I, uh, I was on the program last year. One of my favorite ways that he made fun of advertising was he and his announcer, Harry Von Zell, had a dialogue once in which they could not remember the name of their sponsoring brand. Don't ever neglect the cold. At the very first sign of a cold, get after it immediately with the faster help of sparkling... Uh, sparkling, uh, what's the name? Fred Allen, remember? No, no, no. <laughs> the name of the, what it is that helps fight cold faster, slipped my mind. Well, it'll come to you. Go ahead, Harry. Well, yes, yes, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, if this famous product acts very quickly, yet it's exceptionally gentle. And since the progress of a cold is very fast, the greater speed of, uh, uh, what it is I'm talking about is especially important in fighting your cold. And that's not all. This, uh, the name will come to me in a minute. They're making fun of the fact that hard sell advertising agencies like the Hummerts would just repeat the brand name over and over and over again until you wanted to throw the radio out the window. Fred, you know what I'm talking about. Why, certainly, Harry. You're talking about America's outstanding saline laxative. That's it, Fred. And the name is... The name is, uh, uh, so many physicians recommend it. Yes, yes, and it helps fight cold faster. But what is the name? Wait, Harry, there must be somebody around here who knows. If there is, will you uh, please tell us uh, confidentially? It's Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Another one of my favorite examples is in a drama called The Gibsons, sponsored by Procter & Gamble's Ivory Soap. And now before the overture to the second act of The Gibson Family, let's step backstage and look in on Sally Gibson and Hilda, her maid, who is helping Sally change for the next scene. In this scene, the young lady of the house is instructing her maid about the best kind of soap to use. Help me, what's wrong with my face, Miss Sally? Those red blotches just won't go away. Soap, probably. What kind are you using? Some beauty soap, I suppose. Yes, Miss Sally. That one that promises radiant beauty, glamorous youth, irresistible loveliness. She also criticizes other advertising strategies. Silly, you can't feed the pores of your skin with beauty oils or mysterious ingredients. No. And many highly perfumed, prettily colored soaps contain fatty acids and free alkalis that really irritate and harm your skin. But, Miss Fowler. My doctor recommended ivory. He said ivory would help to keep my skin smooth and fine. And Miss Sally, do you think Henry would... Oh, quick, my gloves, Hilda. Isabel for the second act. 
by integrating the ad throughout the show, they would hope that the audience would stay attentive. And by staying attentive, would then get the advertising message. And this strategy has come back in full force today. Advertisers have been working very hard at integrating themselves in all sorts of ways because advertisers know that they probably lose your attention once the commercial interruption comes on. One of the most obvious ways to sell your show, and in turn your product, is to put someone famous on the payroll. When the blue. J. Walter Thompson was one of the top radio program producers of the time. And J. Walter Thompson's main strategy on radio was to use celebrities. They produced shows like Craft Music Hall with Bing Crosby. Nice going, Bing. Very sharp. Thank you, Ken. Major Bowe's Amateur Hour, which was like the American Idol of its day. Our gifted amateurs are ready to entertain you and to entrust their success to you and to your votes. The Fleischmann's Yeast Hour with Rudy Valley, who was a famous singer. My time is your time. Another version of it had Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist, and Charlie McCarthy was his dummy. I think we better do it now. I would rather do it tomorrow. I think we better do it now. But I would rather... It doesn't make any difference what you'd rather do. Oh, that's no. Well, that's another way of looking at it. <laughs> It's pretty strange when you think about having ventriloquism on the radio. By this time, I think most of you get the idea. But for the sake of newcomers, I'll repeat. Both male voices you hear in this act come from the lips and behind the lips of one man. They also had a show called Lux Radio Theater. From Hollywood, California, the Lux Radio Theater presents Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Where they would take current Hollywood movies and reduce them down to a short running time then have the movie stars come on and, on a live broadcast, reenact scenes from that movie. Did someone call? The princess spoke! Oh, look, she's awake! Her spell is broke! She's gonna live! She isn't home! Just the charm! <laughs> this was a way to not just promote the movie, but it was designed to associate Lux toilet soap with movie stars. Aiding in tonight's production and our guest of honor is Walt Disney himself. Mr. DeMille will step before the curtain in just a moment. But before he does, a word about the product that brings you this program, Lux Flakes. Lux Flakes have thousands of loyal followers all over the world because lovely women everywhere depend on these fine, gentle flakes to keep their things dainty. It was a very effective strategy that you see advertisers still use today. Beyonce selling Pepsi. The joy of Pepsi. The celebrity brings in a built-in audience. You're the Pepsi and so it's a way of pre-buying your audience. You're not having to build your audience from scratch. And then you say, oh, and by the way, Bing Crosby loves Kraft cheese. New rain, isn't it? Yeah, Bing. Mr. Dale Kraft sent this to me as a memento of 10 years on the old Kraft music. Oh, he did. Don't get so smug about it. He sent me one, too, you know. Yeah. So if you like Bing Crosby, maybe you'll like Kraft cheese. The downside is... If the audience turns against that celebrity, let's say that celebrity gets involved in some kind of scandal, then it's a problem for the advertiser because the advertiser only wants positive associations with its brand. And this becomes a really big problem during the McCarthy era when advertisers begin blacklisting performers fearful that housewives would stop buying Kraft cheese if they hired a communist actor. 
I get the impression that while you are quite an actor, I don't think you have any conception of the danger of the Communist Party. But by the 1940s, most radio shows were led by major stars because advertisers realized that big stars helped build big audiences. Yeah, when I first went into pictures, an actor was an actor. Well, what is an actor in Hollywood today? He's a straight man for a set of dishes. <laughs> Another completely different strategy was institutional advertising. You're not trying to advertise a particular product. You're not trying to get somebody to buy your brand of soap. Instead, what you're advertising is your corporate image. You're trying to get people to think that your company is a good company. BBDO was one of the top institutional advertising agencies. Companies hired BBDO to help improve their image among the public. And one way they did that was by sponsoring radio shows. Their clients included General Electric, the General Electric Theater, General Motors, General Motors on Safari, U.S. Steel, United States Steel, the industrial family that serves the nation, presents The Hour of Mystery. DuPont, makers of better things for better living through chemistry. These were all giant corporations that had major public image problems. They had major labor strikes. They were dealing with all sorts of safety and health issues. In particular, the chemical company DuPont, after making a fortune manufacturing munitions for the First World War, was being investigated under accusations of encouraging a global arms race. DuPont hired BBDO to make a radio show called Cavalcade of America. The Cavalcade of America. Which told stories about American history, particularly American technological history. So they would hire actors and dramatize moments of the past, like the invention of the Remington rifle. When there's such a demand for your gun, you can't just say, sorry, but I can't take any more orders. You make more guns. And turn it into a kind of heroic drama to appeal to audiences and to convince them that DuPont actually shared their American values. Mr. Remington, I've come from Texas. Can you make 150 Remington rifles for delivery in six months? And that DuPont was a company leading the way in technological progress. For more than 130 years, almost as long as this nation has lived, the name of DuPont has been associated with this country's progress. So it seems appropriate that DuPont should have the privilege of presenting this series of episodes taken truthfully from American history to remind us that from the earliest days to the present time, the American people has stood for the staunch and simple qualities that form our heritage. They hired big stars to perform in it. Now The Forge, starring Ronald Reagan as Elizabeth Remington on the Cavalcade of America. They hired all sorts of major writers to write for it, and they hired historians to vet the historical accuracy. A group of distinguished educators, prominent in the American Historical Association, is working with DuPont to achieve the spirit of historical accuracy. So they're spending a lot of money on essentially a public relations effort. It is the hope of DuPont that these stories from the pages of our country's history will awaken in the Americans of today a renewed pride in the Americans who went before us. In the cavalcade of America, they had BPDO go do a bunch of survey research. Basically, what they learned is that it was not a very popular program. 
But the people who listened seemed to be convinced that DuPont was a good company. And so they kept it up. Out of chemical research come the thousands of products that contribute to better living. It was on the air almost two decades. And they turned it into a television show. The DuPont Company, maker of better things for better living through chemistry, presents the DuPont Cavalcade Theater. Dramatic stories of people who were a part of the Cavalcade of America. Because they were convinced of its value as a public relations effort. By the 1970s, institutional advertisers basically move over to public broadcasting. And that's where you find companies like Mobile Oil sponsoring dramas on Masterpiece Theater. Masterpiece Theater has a strange effect on intelligent people. It lures them to their television sets and it doesn't let them go. It's essentially the same strategy. Masterpiece Theater, Sunday evenings on PBS. Brought to you by Mobile. Amid this variety of radio programming, there was one format, ubiquitous today, that was conspicuously missing from 1930s airwaves. We didn't have very many broadcast news programs in the 30s and 40s because they didn't have the recording technology and the field equipment. And because when audiences didn't like something, they would threaten to boycott the advertiser. But... BBDO actually produced The March of Time. The March of Time! Which was a news docudrama, which later became a newsreel that people would see in movie theaters. But it started as a radio show. They would hire people like Orson Welles, who was an unknown actor, to come in and perform news stories. Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. So they would script them. They had a live audience. They had a live sound effects person. And people didn't realize sometimes that they were hearing a reenactment. They reenacted the assassination attempt on President Roosevelt. My friends of Miami. And people thought they were hearing the actual gunshots. They reenacted the burning of the Hindenburg the same night that it happened. Go to the cabin for your life, Bill. Do as I tell you. They reenacted Amelia Earhart disappearing in the Pacific and had an actress play Amelia Earhart trying to make her last radio transmission. It wasn't exactly engine trouble. It was the exhaust manifold. And many listeners thought they were actually hearing Amelia Earhart. I cruised inland until I found a suitable pasture. So that was news in the early 30s. We didn't actually get broadcast news until World War II and after that. World War II would be a major turning point in American radio. The dramatic story of radio at war. During the run-up to the war, there was a lot of fear that the U.S. government would take over broadcasting and nationalize it. This is Washington, W-A-R, at H-R, minus 20, execute plan Z, over. Instead, what happened was the Office for War Information had been sending out documentary-style announcements about what people at home should do to help the home front. We've got to follow a new way of life, a war way of life. Every home, every business, every farm is in that war. Every man, woman, and child. They were very didactic and kind of like instructional pamphlets. Take every bit of scrap you have to an official salvage depot. Pick up all sorts of rubber accessories. Save the grease from cooking. But if your local salvage committee does not ask for tin cans, please do not bring them in. 
Let me repeat. That is, until the office was appointed a new leader. A gentleman named William B. Lewis, who had been an executive at CBS and also at J. Walter Thompson, came from this background in radio entertainment advertising. And he said, you know, how about if we set up a system where we take existing radio shows and just ask them to integrate propaganda information into it? It was called his network allocation plan, where one type of program would be assigned to talk about victory gardens. Victory gardens. A victory garden was growing your own vegetables to feed your family. We can grow food for victory in our own backyards and even in vacant lots where perhaps only weeds flourished before. There was no requirement as to how they would mention victory gardens. They could do something that sounded like a commercial. You can have vegetables, lots of them, on your table next winter. You can have your own fresh vegetables on your table this summer if you have your own victory garden. If it were a soap opera, one of the characters could be growing her own victory garden. Thank you. But the garden really isn't mine. I merely take care of it, see that everything is properly cared for. Well, now shall we go in? In musical variety shows, they could sing a song about victory gardens. Working in the old hometown. Working in the old home. In comedy shows, they could tell jokes about Victory Gardens. Roses are red, violets are blue. I know violets are blue because I seen her hanging them out in a line the other day. <laughs> it didn't matter as long as Victory Gardens were mentioned during the program. And then the next week, they would be given the assignment to talk about how to buy war bonds. Look, will you do something for me? And what's that? Take this money and buy war bonds in my name. When I come back after the war, I can use it. Besides, I can't think of a better Christmas present for Uncle Sam. Or how to recycle rubber tires. The greatest name in rubber, Goodyear, invites you to meet America's greatest Western star, Roy Rogers. A lot of people were very angry about this because they thought propaganda should be serious and not entertaining. A fanatic nation turning its sweat into weapons for conquest. Sweat for guns. But... Lewis was somebody who understood that the way that you find audiences, the way you get audience attention, and the way you get buy-in from audiences is to entertain them. Any bonds today, bonds of freedom, that's what I'm selling, any bonds today. Now, radio boomed in this period. I would say it reached its highest popularity in terms of listenership. Consumer products were not being produced in factories at this time. The American economy was a war economy, and so you couldn't buy new radios, you couldn't buy television sets, you couldn't buy a new car. And so people had to make do with what they had, and radio was something that over 90% of American households had. The magic of radio, bridging space faster than the most powerful plane. So radio was the dominant medium, and the end of World War II was its high watermark before it lost out to television. For a look at the early television industry, check out our episode on the Forgotten Network. It's called Dumont. Life has more to it, you thrill when you view it through Dumont. Television takes quite a while to come into American homes. It's invented back in the 30s, but the Depression and the war interrupt its dissemination. When they start with television, they're carrying over the radio model with dramas like General Electric Theater. For General Electric, 
Here is Ronald Reagan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Armstrong Circle Theater. Makers of Armstrong's linoleum and Armstrong's plastic floors. U.S. Steel Hour. This is the United States Steel Hour. Variety shows like the Colgate Hour. Starring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Texaco Star Theater. You'll find that Texaco's the finest friend your car has ever had. With Milton Berle. And now, ladies and gentlemen, there he is, Mr. Television himself, your Tuesday night Cinderella, Milton Berle. These were all shows that were live and single-sponsored. And initially, that's what everybody thought. That's what TV would be. It'd be just sort of like radio, but with that little screen. But television, of course, cost 10 times as much to produce a show. You had to have lights, costumes. You had to have actors who learned their lines instead of reading a script in front of a mic. Television was too expensive for a single advertiser. So you'd buy a 60-second spot rather than a show. 50 million times a day at home at work or on the way. By the 60s, you also have the networks finally realizing that they are media companies, they're not technology companies. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. And the entire industry has to realign. While broadcasters shifted to producing their own shows, agencies narrowed their focus to the ads themselves. Open a Budweiser and pour yourself the most inviting glass of beer you've ever tasted. Television commercials turn into elaborately produced, high-budget little mini-movies that appear in between the scenes of a lot of anodyne kind of TV shows. The programs were designed to be this easygoing, flat backdrop. Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. I want Lassie to enjoy it, too. She will, dear. Essentially, they're to fill airtime so that an advertiser can sell something in between. Come alive. You're in the Pepsi generation. The ads have much higher budgets on a per-second basis. The ads have top talent. And so we have this period in the 60s and 70s and 80s where I would say that the ads become much better produced than the shows. You're in the Pepsi generation. This changes by the time cable comes along in the 1980s. Look on my ego. You like on my ego. And today, of course, things are changing some more. So in this video, I'm going to show you everything that you need to know when it comes to running ads on Instagram. How to set up high-performing Twitter ad campaigns. How to run ads on Snapchat. How to make a great video ad the easy way. How to get TikTok famous in less than 10 minutes. How to be an influencer. How to make an impact. How to create a strong personal brand. Audiences are tiny today for linear broadcasts. Nielsen is only measuring maybe a million viewers for a top network show. And of course, audience attention has moved to streaming and to all sorts of other outlets and platforms and technologies for not only consuming content, but for creating their own content. And so advertisers are now once again doing as much brand integration as they can, as much product placement as they can. And they're paying producers, essentially, to insert their brands and to associate their brand with something that audiences like. 
So essentially, the basic premise of all radio sponsorship in the 30s and 40s, it's still the basic strategy today. Bing Crosby loves Minute Maid. Here's wonderful news for you and me That Minute Maid gives more vitamin C So why squeeze orange juice yourself? When doctors say Minute Maid orange juice is better for your health Yes, Minute Maid orange juice is better for your health This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alex Williams, with producers Max Williams and Trevor Young. Cynthia B. Myers is the author of A Word from Our Sponsor, Admen, Advertising, and the Golden Age of Radio. Find it wherever books are sold, and find us on the World Wide Web at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Take time to write and tell us that you're listening. And please ask others to listen too.